Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as the director of the Middle East Center, it's a great pleasure to have you all here for what is our opening lecture of the Michaelmas term and of the new academic year. So I'm glad you all found it, and I'm glad to say that we have a remarkable speaker with which to start this year, an old friend of the Middle East Center and a celebrated author whose works have rightly brought him fame and good repute, even among your critics. James Moore came to St. Anthony's College on a book writing fellowship about 10 years ago. This was in the aftermath of a very successful book looking at the life of Lawrence of Arabia and giving us palimpsests of diaries that hopefully were going to yield secrets about what Lawrence had gotten up to between the lines of the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But stands as one of the most outstanding studies of Lawrence and the Arab Revolt, not least because our author put his boots on and walked across the land in which the history took place. And he's, in the years that have followed, been tracing the engagement of the Arab world with the great Western powers. His last book, The Line in the Sand, was the study of Anglo-French relations in the First World War and in the interwar years that does more to resolve some of the unresolved issues of modern Middle Eastern history than probably any book on the interwar years I have read. It just allows you to see that there was still a rivalry between Britain and France that explains a great deal about British actions in Syria, French support for the young state of Israel that might not have made sense until you'd read Orion and the Sun. Where do you go when you've seen the Arab world through the creation of the state of Israel at the beginning of the Arab-Israeli conflict? Well, quite naturally, you look at the relations between Britain and the United States as a very uncomfortable handover takes place between hegemons. And that is the material of James's latest book, Lords of the Desert, Britain's Struggle with America to Dominate the Middle East. It is, as one who got an advanced copy can confess, as all of James's book, a stunning read. You just can't put the book down. But it also has the wonderful depth of archival research to give great credibility to some pretty extraordinary assertions, some of which he will be sharing with us tonight. To encourage him, will you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to James Clark. Eugene, thank you for that uh, glowing introduction. I'm very, very flattered. Uh, I had a marvellous year here, um, 10 years ago, uh, researching a line in the sand. And I didn't actually write it that year. I spent most of the year beavering away here in the archives and, uh, and then eventually wrote it a couple of years later and it came out in 2011. And I had a bit of a break. And, and then, as Eugene said, this is the book. So like, I was thinking, what shall I do next? And one of the things that really interested me, at the, finishing off that book, there's a chapter in the line of the sand actually about Britain and, or about the American angle, um, which you'll find in this book as well. Very, very, very close, close kind of following of the same story. But I was very interested when I went into the British archives and I started to uncover documents where there was still stuff redacted. It was fairly clear from the context that it was MI5 listening to American politicians who were going out to Palestine as it was then uh, and then reporting back um, their views. And there was stuff missing that, that made me fairly sure that that was what was going on. So I started to think that this was the sort of subject that, that would fill a new book. But of course, that kind of runs counter to what we tend to think, because if you think of our collusion with the United States, say, our Britain's collusion with the United States in 1953 to overthrow Mossadegh, that gave rise to us as, uh, 
as the great and the little Satan. You'll know that the general view, in, uh, reinforced by Gulf War in 1991 and Iraq in 2003, is that we have always been in cahoots with the Americans in the Middle East. But if you go back 70, 80 years, you find that there's a very different story to tell. And it's one in which uh, Britain emerges very much variably as a competitor with the United States and frequently a rival. There's very, very few moments where, in fact, the two sides see eye to eye. And even indeed on the, on the coup, if you know a lot about the coup, I think you'll agree with this, uh, there were very different motives for, for getting rid of Saleh at that particular moment in time. The British and the Americans came at this from very different angles. So I started to think that was the sort of interesting, um, that was an interesting angle for the book. Um, and my interest was further piqued by a quote, it was Eden, Anthony Eden, uh, someone who should know all about this, talking in his retirement about a conversation that he had had with Enoch Powell, of all people, at the end of the 1940s. Now this is before Powell became infamous for his comments about immigration. And he was at that time regarded very much as the Conservative Party's go-to man on any sort of matter of sort of that required deep thought. And he was a particular expert on housing. And Eden, this was when the Tories were in opposition at the end of the 40s, Attlee is in power. And Eden went to see Powell to ask him about housing. And at the end of their conversation, Eden got what he wanted out of, out of this. And he, at the end of the conversation, Powell fixed him with that sort of slightly um, unnerving, icy look of his. And said, I want to, I, I've got something I want to talk about, um, about Anthony. He said, I want to tell you that in the Middle East, our great enemies are the Americans. And Eden said, scrolling on to sort of 1960-something, Eden said, uh, I had no idea what he meant. Of course, I do now. Now, the thing is that that's sort of, it's a good story, and I, I, I don't doubt the conversation took place, but the idea that Eden didn't know about this rivalry is, well, either he, had, either he was lying or he'd forgotten. Because if you go back to the 1940s and you go into the archives again, uh, you find a particularly good memo in July 1943, and it's a cabinet <coughs> memorandum that Eden has written describing the increasingly difficult relationship between uh, Britain and America in that part of the world. And the thing that Eden brings up at that moment, he says, we are faced with a revival of Arabism and Zionism. And, and the problem in particular that he is seized with at that moment is that the the Zionists are supported by uh, propagandists in the United States. And I think the word revival there is the crucial one, because I think if you... Uh, Britain had confronted both these, these forces before. It had tried to manipulate both, both Arab nationalism and Zionism before, before that moment. But the point was, and what was concerning Eden at that moment by the middle of the, the Second World War, was the fact that these two, or at least, well, Zionism at that point and later, of course, Arab nationalism had sponsorship from outside and they had sponsorship from the United States and it was that that was bothering him. So in a sense, that's the, the, the starting point for the book. The book covers 1942 to 1967 and uh, it really revolves around three flashpoints and then ends with the sort of an irony. And the first flashpoint is over empire and over Britain's desire to keep it in the Middle East and uh, America's desire to um, take it apart. And then the story moves on to oil. So that, that first part really occupies the period from 1942 to 40, 48 or so. And by 48, a new conflict is emerging over oil. And I shall talk about um, both <coughs> empire and oil tonight. I won't have time to go through the whole story, but I, I will cover both those issues. Uh, and then NASA, of course. That was the other, the other big issue where the Americans had decided that, that uh, NASA was, was their, their kind of their golden hope. And the, American, uh, and the British very quickly realised that, that he wasn't. And that story is relatively well known. But I bring something, I think, new to it, which I'll, I'll talk about in just a sec. 
And then finally there's the irony, because the point was, uh, from the very beginning and from the, the moment that a man called Wendell Wilkie, who I'll talk about, arrived in the Middle East in 1942 to the, the early 60s, the Americans were pretty determined that uh, Britain should get themselves out of that part of the world. As, as Wilkie put it to the British ambassador in Washington, uh, we were running a bad show and the sooner we got out, the better. But by the end of the 60s, the situation had changed and there was a situation that I described in the last 50 pages or so in the book where the, the Americans were absolutely desperate for the British to stay in. Uh, they wanted us to, to remain there for reasons which the British... Oh, well, Dennis Healy put most cynically. He said uh, in his autobiography that he, he felt that the Americans did not want to be the only people killing brown people on foreign soil at that time. Uh, but that gives you a kind of idea of just how bitterly the British felt about this by the time they left Aden in 67. There's some new sources in this book. I think the key things are... I tried to use freedom of information. I'd used that quite successfully with A Line in the Sand to uncover the remaining things, relatively <coughs> few things that were still secret from before 1945. And that had worked pretty well. And I got some good stuff out about, uh, if you know Edward Lewis Spears, one of my favourite baddies, his activities in, in Beirut and Damascus during the, the Second World War. Well, that, the FOI I used to lever the remaining stuff open there. But this time that technique didn't work at all. And I put in numerous requests and bothered the Foreign Office. And uh, the, the answers got slower and slower. And of the, of, I should think of the requests I put in, maybe a third came back with actually any material. And of that stuff, it was all pretty boring by and large, except for a few nuggets. And the most interesting one concerns a conference that the British and the Americans held in the beginning of 1956. So just as Britain was starting to think about trying to get rid of not just Nasser, but also um, Kuwaitli in, in Syria and, um, and Saud in, in Saudi. Originally, 1956 was going to be a big year for Britain. They were going to get rid of the three people they disliked most in that part of the world. Uh, and the Americans managed to whittle that down to what they thought. They thought they were just going to get rid of the Syrians. And, of course, the British also had uh, Nasser uh, in mind as well. Uh, but I'll talk a bit about um, the Saudis in a bit. Some of the minutes from that conference are quite interesting, and it's very, very clear that the British were entertaining the idea of encouraging Iraq to invade Saudi in early 1956. And that was stuff that had been previously been redacted, but finally, uh, due to an error by someone doing the redacting, they sent me two copies of the same memorandum. One of them was redacted, and the other one brilliantly was not. Um, and I was very delighted when that came through. Uh, what else was there? The Permanent Undersecretary's Department is very good. They, those are the files of the, where the, the Foreign Office is dealing with the Friends, MI6, and uh, there's some good stuff in there, uh, including the revelation that... So when Wendell Wilkie, who I'll come on to talk about, went to the Middle East, that MI6 were receiving reports on what he was up to, and these were being funneled by seed ahead of MI6 back to um, customers in London. The foreign relations of the United States have produced a new uh, tranche of Iran-related files last year, a big <coughs> thousand pages, and I went through that. And from my point of view, there wasn't a huge amount in it that seemed to change uh, things, but there was something very interesting, which was hinted at in the, the previous version of the files, but now became absolutely clear. And that was that the British in 1951 were already considering the idea of breaking Iran in two. So they had sent uh, probably MI6 officers, but certainly British British. Um, agents had gone into that area of uh, the tribal area, essentially round, round the oil fields, if I get out my laser pointer. They had been sending people into the area around the oil fields and having conversations with the tribes uh, with a view to trying to encourage them to break away from Tehran. Uh, and I thought that was rather interesting. But the brilliant thing that I found was right here. It was here in the archives here. 
and it is uh, the diary of a man called John Slade Baker. And uh, this, up to that point, I was frankly struggling to find lots of exciting new material, and this really revolutionised everything, because Slade Baker was the special correspondent for the Sunday Times, but he was, um, as it turned out, also something else. He was also working for MI6. <laughs> and the diaries, the diaries are extraordinary. If you are working on the period 1952 to 1960 and covering anywhere between um, Libya and uh, Ethiopia and Iran and Turkey, then they're well worth a look uh, because he had pretty good access. He was, he was working... So, I mean, he was doing, I mean, he was doing two jobs. He was, he was writing rather boring reportage for the Sunday Times. But his diaries are absolutely extraordinary. If you read, the, if you read his newspaper reports, you think it would be really boring. But the, the, the diaries are superb. I think, Philip, you quoted them in, I think you quoted from them in your book about Jordan. He was really, uh, he was well known for his contacts with King Hussein. And that, in fact, when I started to sort of try and just, just check that this was not, so I wasn't being conned here, um, I went to see a man called Patrick Wright, who is mentioned in the diaries. He was then a sort of 23 or 24-year-old diplomat. He's now in his 80s, uh, and he's in the House of Lords, and he ended up as permanent undersecretary at the, at, uh, at the Foreign Office. And without explaining exactly why I was interested, because I wanted to try and get a sort of a clear, a, a clear view of this, I went to see him, and I said, do you remember this man, Slade Baker? He said, oh, yes, yes, yeah, I do. And he had great, sort of great in with King Hussein. Uh, which I thought was interesting. But if you read right back to the beginning of the diaries, it's quite, it is coded, but it is absolutely clear that he was working for MI6. And in fact, his daughter, who I eventually tracked down, confirmed that back in the summer. So it's a really extraordinary source because there's lots and lots of insights. He, he got to know NASA relatively well uh, and other people in, uh, within the um, RCC. What else? King Hussein, he was involved in something I don't even go into in the book, but there was an attempt by MI6 to work out a way to funnel Hussein money in the 1950s, and they found a conduit, a man um, who was going to do this, and the diaries exposed that. And they also talk about some of the information warfare that went on, and in particular, uh, an episode in, again in late 55, when the British had taken against uh, King Saud, they started to try and work out ways to undermine him. And what they realised was that King Saud by now was actually getting... He was, he was, as always, living beyond his means. He was borrowing money on something called tax anticipation warrants. And um, I won't go into the details, it's too much, it's quite arcane, but it is in the book. Um, but essentially what that meant was that because he knew that New York bankers wouldn't want to actually come to Riyadh to come and collect the money, they were going to collect the money direct from Aramco, who owed the Saudi government money. So it cut out the Saudis out of this link. And what MI6 uh, was clearly up to was trying to undermine confidence in the sort of Saudi monarchy's longevity, essentially. So it was an attempt, using most of just the British papers, but you can start to see this, this, this propaganda campaign played out in the British press. All this is exposed in the diaries. As I say, they're absolutely fascinating fascinating resource and I would really recommend them and they're a good I mean, they're actually fundamental they're actually a good read there's lots of good quotes and I have mined it extensively for the book the story I'm going to try and talk a bit about the beginning of the story and then a couple of incidents from relatively early in it to give you just a flavor of the sorts of things that were going on and hopefully there'll be time for questions and we can go into frankly whatever but it all starts in 1942 and at that point Britain was the unquestioned dominant power in this part of the world because they had 
what Churchill called the ration strength of 800,000 men in Egypt, in other words, 800,000 people they were feeding, who he expected to fight and die in Egypt's defence if necessary. And of course, they were the power behind the throne there, working the sort of the relationship with the, the king and the, and the government. They ran Palestine, of course, under the mandate, and they were the power behind the throne in Jordan and Iraq, and they had divided Iran with the Russians in, after invading in 1941. And then in Lebanon and Syria, there was this weird condominium with de Gaulle where essentially they were duking it out with him uh, and trying to gradually sort of move him out, but, but having a problem doing it. So that was the situation. And it's into that that Wendell Wilkie arrives. And if you, uh, I've mentioned him a few times, but if he mean, means nothing to you, um, his story is a rather resonant one because he was, a, he was a businessman who'd come from nowhere to seize the Republican Party's nomination in 1940. Um, but unlike someone more recent, he, he didn't win. Um, it's a shame. I mean, it, much as I, I, I like FDR, I, I think Wilkie presidency would have been very interesting. He was an internationalist came from that branch. And there is a suspicion that, I mean, certainly the British were hoping that Wilkie would win. There is, I think, now a suspicion that perhaps they, they really gave him some help to, to at least get the nomination. But So he was nominated in 1940. He fought the election and he lost, not by a, a million miles, although the, the votes look, make it look like a, a, big, a big loss, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And the important thing was that he didn't, he was still popular. Although he'd lost, he wasn't an unpopular man. He was, it was... I, one of the better, sort of more pleasant elections, I suppose, and, and FDR realised that he still had someone who might threaten him. And so, like any uh, clever politician, he decided to, send, to try and get Wilkie out to go and do stuff. And so Wilkie visited London in ni- early 1941. He went and he was instrumental in encouraging the uh, Congress to pass Lend-Lease uh, later in, in January, February 1941. And then in 42, just as the midterm elections were coming up, Roosevelt found another job for him, and this time it was to go on an around-the-world trip. And they, they gave him a, a converted bomber and a crew, and he had a PR advisor, and off he went. And his first stop uh, on this 49-day trip, or his first stop where he actually really touched down and, and did more than just get out of the, uh, out of the plane and, and sort of stretch his legs, was Cairo. And he arrived there in that period, the very, very tense period in August 1942, when... The British had stopped the Germans at El Alamein, somewhere about there-ish, I think. Um, but they hadn't, yet beat, they hadn't yet been the Battle of El Alamein. So there was this point where you know, there was still a very big battle to come. And Wilkie arrived wearing his pith helmet, uh, which he very rapidly took off. The, the first pictures on showing him arriving out of the aeroplane show him in his pith helmet, but you'll struggle to find another one after that when he looked out and realised that nobody else was wearing one. But he arrived and... He had a real social conscience. He, he'd grown up, um, or he'd spent quite a lot of time in the Deep South, and he had also spent time as a student on a, on a sugar plantation, I think it's right to say, and he had a, a strong social con- conscience. And what he saw in Cairo really appalled him. He found the squalor, stomach churning, I suppose is the best, best word, and he was appalled by something else, and that was British officials' attitude. Now, of course, you'll know if you study this particular bit, you'll know actually the British have very limited powers of, they weren't in control in Egypt. In fact, every time they tried to interfere, the Egyptians told them to, to, to get lost. But to his, to his mind, the place was swarming with uh, British personnel, and yet the country was a, a shambles, and there were lots of people, clearly there was a huge public health problem. 
But the other thing that bothered him was the, the British officials that he met. He, he had a dinner with them in Alexandria on his way back from meeting Monty at the front. And he asked them about the Atlantic Charter. Now, the Atlantic Charter was the, the agreement that Churchill had been sort of rather pushed into to, um, signing the year before aboard a, a ship just um, off Newfoundland with, with Roosevelt which committed uh, the British to the self-determination of all peoples and, and free trade. Now, those two concepts were essentially a, a jab at the British Empire. And Wilkie decided he'd ask these British officials about you know, what they felt about the Charter. And he was really appalled by what he heard, because as he, he asked them, he realised that none of them had... Well, they'd, they'd heard of it, uh, but none of them actually felt that you know, it had anything to do with them and it had any consequence for them. And that gave Wilkie pause for thought. And what he saw after that only reinforced that because he went on, he went to, uh, to Syria, he went, well, he, no, sorry, he went to Beirut and there he met de Gaulle. And he met de Gaulle in a room which I think the PR advisor described as being absolutely empty apart from a table and chairs and seven busts or portraits of Napoleon on the wall. <laughs> and he, so he went there and de Gaulle told him that his great struggle at the moment was whether Britain or France should dominate this part of the world. So, again, Wilkie was thinking, but surely these people should be working for the betterment of the, the, the people they are they're governing, and instead he finds them involved in this sort of internecine um, struggle. Then he went back to Jerusalem. And he spent a day there, he spent a Friday there, and uh, he met people on both sides, and he also got a tour through the, the old city with the High Commissioner. And, of course, it was rather insanitary place then and as he went through holding his nose McMichael the high commissioner said that, that this was very much the sort of the center of Christianity and, 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 and metaphorically the, the, what we were fighting for and Wilkie was rather appalled by this the sort of this kind of high-minded um, speech from the high commissioner and, and yet the sort of rather squalid circumstances that he saw. He then flew on to Iraq they stopped there they slightly blotted their coffee books when one of the the crew on the aeroplane asked to see the famous dancing girls of Babylon, uh, of Baghdad, sorry, rather, and, and um, I think as they say in the, uh, there's the quotes in the book, but they, they trotted out the, the best girls from eight of the, the best whorehouses in town who did a little dance, waved to the customers they recognised and then, and then disappeared off. And then he went to Tehran where he met the, met the young Shah and gave him a ride in his aeroplane and then off he went to China. Now, by the time he got to China, he could see that the British press was censoring what he said, and that made him pretty annoyed. And he got back to the United States 49 days after, after he'd left, and he arrived in New York, and he decided he was going to make a big radio broadcast about what he'd seen. And in 1940, he had won 22 million votes, and 36 million people tuned in to hear him speak. And the broadcast was, a, without naming the British, it was an assault on the British Empire, saying this cannot continue and that we, we have to have a higher-minded reasons for fighting the war. And that really unnerved the British. The British felt that almost that they, they got to know Wilkie quite well. He'd obviously helped them with Lend-Lease and they felt that he had now turned against them and they were wondering what to do. And Churchill and Eden conferred about this, still think, thinking that Wilkie could well be Roosevelt's successor in 1944. He never was because he, di he died. He never got the nomination again and he died before the, the vote. But at that point in 1942, they thought that Wilkie was potentially the man who'd taken over from Roosevelt. And Eden thought the best thing to do was to summon him back to London again, because again, using press censorship, they'd be able to you know, muzzle him and actually 
uh, shut him up. And Churchill's response to this is very interesting. He says we should not, should not be too quick to hail the rising sun. So they still saw him as this man who could change things. But then a few days later, the midterms changed that because what happened was that the more isolationist branch of the Republican Party did really well in the midterms. And so Wilkie's internationalist wing, which I suppose FDR was trying to boost by sending Wilkie on this trip and also to highlight the divisions uh, in the Republican Party. But it was the isolationists who did, who did rather well. And that gave Churchill, uh, it made Churchill realise that perhaps Wilkie wasn't the man who was going to run in 1944. And it explains what happens next. So the Battle of Alamein was won, and just after that, Churchill made a very, very famous speech in Mansion House. And you'll know it because in it, he talks about it not being the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. That's the, the phrase for which the speech is very famous. That's the first half of the speech. But in the second half, of the speech, he has he turns another very famous phrase, uh, which is that he has not become the the king's first minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. Mm. Now, you might assume that was aimed at Roosevelt. That would be obvious. But actually, if you look at the context and you look at what had happened, this was a direct shot at Wilkie. It was the response to Wilkie's radio broadcast in a few days earlier. Things quickly got worse, though, because Wilkie, having, <coughs> uh, having heard this, having heard this shot and being very, but now really angry with Churchill, who he regarded as a rather reactionary character anyhow, decided that he would fire one back and he waited for the 25th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration which came up just at that moment as well to, to fire that shot back. Uh, so Churchill's speech was something like the 12th of November, I'm just trying to remember, and then the Balfour Declaration anniversary came up and Wilkie could see what was, he could see what was already the, the, the sort of the, the mood in the States because by 1942 of course the extent of the Holocaust was beginning to become clear or certainly the systematic nature of Nazi attempts to exterminate the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe and the mood in the United States of course was moving becoming more and more militantly pro-Zionist and or pro more, more militant and at that moment Wilkie decided that this would be a good idea to, to take action not least I think with electoral politics in mind, because some of the big states where he needed to win in 1944, which he hadn't picked up in 1940, had fairly sizable Jewish populations, but he could see this had also got a much broader appeal than that. And so he waded in, uh, and he made a very, very forthright uh, declaration in 1942 on the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration to say that he felt that the gates of Palestine must be opened uh, to accommodate the Jewish people and, 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 and called essentially for the establishment of an independent Jewish state. So that's how the book opens. And it really, I suppose, it, it just it sort of opens this era of American interest in that part of the world. I'd really say that I think before that, American interest was very, very limited. It was really just missionary activity focused on the American University in Beirut and, and in Cairo. There were some archaeologists. There were a few oil men, but not very many at that point because oil production in Saudi Arabia was really limited by the war. But at this point, things begin to change. And the person who arrived in Wilkie's footsteps was, was a man called James Landis, who I find fascinating. And uh, he was the son of a missionary, and he was a very driven man. He'd been a trust buster for uh, Roosevelt under the New Deal in the 1930s. And he approached, he arrived as, as the sort of economic coordinator, so rather kind of bland and not too uh, fierce-sounding title. And he arrived in Cairo in 1943 and decided that he would try and sort of break up the British scheme to, to 
to dominate the post-war world. Because as Al Alamein happened after that, Britain start had started to think about what was going to happen. And in particular, they were thinking about how they would protect their position on the Suez Canal. And the idea they'd come up with was what's called the Greater Syria Scheme, that you may have heard of. And it was essentially to create some kind of federation of, of Syria, <coughs> Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and a bit of Palestine. And, and there were various different uh, versions of this, um, concoctions of this, but essentially that was the, the fundamental concept. But the plan's weakness was it was going to depend on, on American approval. The, Brit the British needed American acquiescence to do this. And Landis uh, made it very clear that this was not going to be forthcoming because he saw this part of the world as potentially a very big American market. And at that point, by that point in the war, the Americans were very, very concerned about, uh, about another depression when the war ended. So two sides to sort of anti-imperialism. One was an ideological side, if you like, uh, represented by Wilkie, and one was, one was the... the the more hard-headed economic side represented by Landis. So their great fear was that when the war ended, the factories would fall silent. There would be no more need for tanks and planes and, and guns and ammunition. And what, you know, what were all these people who were engaged in, in fueling the war effort going to do? And people like Landis started to think, well, the, the best place would be that they would start exporting goods to this part of the world. And they saw places like Egypt as being particularly good markets. There was a a growing middle class. There was, there, and a, a lot of these countries had enormous dollar balances, particularly Palestine, which had been selling oranges to the United States. It built up a big dollar surplus, but weren't allowed to spend it because of uh, sterling currency controls imposed by the British. So Landis got in there, and the British were trying to develop this plan under something called the Middle East Supply Centre to sort of essentially to run the Middle East after the war. And Landis broke that up over, over 1943 and 1944. Uh, I used to think that the Greater Syria plan ended with Lord Moyne. Uh, he was the guy who'd been sent in initially to, to mastermind the defence of Cairo, if it ever came to that. And he was a friend of Churchill's, a sort of steely-eyed man, um, whose passions were described by the diarist Chips Channon as being collecting monkeys, fish, yachts and women. Uh, but once, Alan, once Rommel had been beaten, he found himself with time on his hands. So Moyne's job was to to pursue this scheme. I mean, he found it was going to be very difficult to do. He realised there was relatively little appetite for the federation of the sort that the, the British wanted. Uh, the Saud, well, Ibn Saud was dead against it, uh, and so were the Americans. So he, got very, he didn't get very far. And then, he, of course, in November 1944, he was assassinated. I thought that was the end of Greater Syria. When I wrote A Line in the Sand, I thought that was, that was pretty much it. But in fact, Ernest Bevin, who became Foreign Secretary in 1945, pretty much picked up where where Moyne left off. And so in the remaining time I've got, I was going to talk about, well, one fascinating episode, I think, from the book, and then a sort of a subsidiary episode uh, involving two people who are very well known. And the first of them is Kim Roosevelt. The story moves on to oil. By the end of the war, the Americans had decided that there were vast amounts of oil south. Of the, the initial oil field was round here, but they decided that this whole area might contain oil, and that was of considerable interest to them. And they had won the oil concession in 1933, of course, and Aramco had been, uh, well, created, created Cassock, turns, renamed as Aramco in 1944, but it had managed to produce relatively little oil because of most of the Saudi market at that point was in the Far East. It was America producing most of the oil that actually fought the Allies or won the Allies, won the war for the Allies or for the, for the Western Allies. They produced something like 60% of, of uh, the oil used. 
But after the war, or as the war ended, the Americans realized they wanted to preserve their stocks. They wanted to preserve domestic stocks if they could. And they realized there was vast amounts of oil in the Middle East. And they were hoping to turn that to their best advantage. And of course, as the war ended, they were thinking about the reconstruction of Europe as well. And in 1947, in the summer of 1947, George Marshall issued his Marshall Plan. And the idea that the Americans came up with was, was that maybe it was, well, it was going to be Saudi oil that would fuel the Marshall Plan. But to do that, they were going to have to turn the entire Saudi market away from the Far East, which is where it had been, and turn it west. And they came up the idea, with the idea of the line on this map. Rather good, rather good. This is a 1968 map that I found in a junk shop in Crystal Palace. And uh, this is the tap line, so I'm sort of shaking away. But there you go, you can see it. You probably know where it runs. Um, from Sidon on the, uh, the Lebanese coast down to, um, down to the oil fields. And this put, them on, it's put America on a crash course with the British at this point, because Bevin was still thinking in terms of greater Syria. Uh, he was quite uh, excited by this prospect. At this point, rather bizarrely, the, the, because of relations with the British relations with the Egyptians had got so bad, uh, he was hoping that he could move Britain's main military base into Palestine, believe it or not, uh, against, um, well, uh, I don't know how he thought he could do this, but he, he did. And again, he was going to try to join these countries together. Uh, but this was all very secret. And the Americans, of course, realised that if they were going to build the tap line, they would need to get way leaves, i.e. permission to build the pipeline through Jordan, through Syria and through Lebanon. And they got permission in Lebanon very, very quickly. The Lebanese predictably realised this could only be a good thing for them and would bring them, bring them money. And the Jordanians followed relatively soon afterwards, and it was the Syrians who held out. And as, obviously, as the situation in Palestine got worse, the Syrian government found it very harder and harder to uh, do a deal with uh, the, uh, an American oil company whose government was backing Zionist ambitions in Palestine. And the, the Americans were increasingly concerned about the attitude of King Abdullah in Jordan and, and what the British were up to behind the scenes. Now, the British, publicly, the British government was professing absolute neutrality on the question of greater Syria. They were saying it's an all a local initiative. Uh, we, are, we are completely neutral about it. We don't, we don't mind either way. The Americans suspected this wasn't the case. And by the time that George Marshall issued his plan in June 1947. He had decided there was something up, and so he, he kind of issued a, a, a demand for more information, both uh, stuff that his diplomats could get, but also stuff that intelli his, the intelligence uh, service at the time, which was just before the CIA, it was called the Central Intelligence Group, could get. Enter at this point Kim Roosevelt, uh, a cousin of FDR, um, grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He had fought, or he he had worked in the war for the Office for Strategic Services, and he arrived in Cairo in May 1947 as a magazine journalist, or at least in theory as a magazine journalist. Nothing of the, well, he was. He had a commission from Harper's Magazine to write some articles, but this was cover for what he was actually supposed to be doing. And the good news is he wrote all this up in a book. Um, I always find it interesting how some, some spies can't resist writing about their exploits. And, of course, he wrote a much more famous book called Countercoup, later about what he did in 1953, um, but he'd written one before that, and not a book that's not well known called Arab's Blood and History, uh, published in 1949. It's a wonderful book. I would really recommend it. And it describes what he was up to at this time, but he, by moving the chronology and by dealing with the subject thematically, he camouflages what he was up to. Anyway, he started in, uh, with his wife Polly, he started in Cairo, then he moved to Beirut, sometime after May 1947. 
around the time of, I think it was, well, you have to calculate when Ramadan was that year, but he went to see King Abdullah. And again, he was there ostensibly writing for, for, the, uh, for, the, for the magazine, but actually trying to find out what was really going on behind the scenes. Well, the, the interview with King Abdullah went through with Abdullah holding him by the arm and gave him, gave him a sort of cuddle throughout uh, and, and, and carefully giving him no information whatsoever. Uh, Roosevelt got nothing out of that particular, that particular encounter. But a different one that Roosevelt had was much, much more productive. And that was with a man called Alec Kirkbride, who was 20 years older than Roosevelt. Roosevelt was in his early 30s at that point, or just, just 30. And Kirkbride came from a different era. He'd fought alongside Lawrence of Arabia in the First World War when he was just 18. And he was now the proconsul in, in Amman. He was essentially the king's main advisor. And Roosevelt describes him in the book without saying who he is. He describes this big, sort of white-suited Englishman who's glistening with sweat. Uh, but it, if you, he gives enough details about him that it's absolutely clear who this, who this man is. And I read a fascinating book along the way about what sort of, sort of essentially sort of espionage techniques um, as I was doing the research for this book, about, about how spies try to get information out of people just in conversations, which I found was really interesting. And I bet essentially about the hourglass technique. I don't know if you've ever heard of the hourglass technique, but essentially it's, you do not start with your, your killer question at the beginning. You wait till the middle of the conversation and you drop in your, your important question and then you go back out onto you know, what are you doing for your summer holidays before party <laughs> company at the end. Uh, so you can imagine Roosevelt deploying this sort, of, this sort of thing. He went in there, he went to see Kirkbride, and at some point in that conversation, he got Kirkbride to say what the Americans suspected, but, but the British government simultaneously in London was publicly denying. If you look in Hansard, you can see uh, the British minister at the time, Hector McNeil, saying that there is no, we are not um, involved in Greater Syria, we don't support the ambitions of any, any of the... the potentates in the Middle East. But Roosevelt spoke to Kirkbride, and Kirkbride said, uh, I'm find the quote, it's quite good. Just see if I can get it quickly. Roosevelt must have realized that he was on the verge of striking gold. Days earlier in London, in response to US pressure, a British minister had again denied that the British government favored greater Syria, and stated that the attitude of local British officials like Kirkbride was one of strict neutrality. Roosevelt let Kirkbride keep talking. This idea, this is Kirkbride speaking, of separate Syrian and Lebanese republics, that's a lot of nonsense, the veteran British official continued. This all used to be one country, Syria, Lebanon, Transjordan, and what we call Palestine too. It was all Syria. It wasn't until the Versailles Peace Conference and all that stuff came along that it was split up. One kingdom for the whole area could stand up to Soviet penetration where three or four small states can't possibly. Can't, can't possibly. Abdullah's the man to head it up. Abdullah's the man to head it up. Roosevelt had got exactly what he wanted. And where did he go with this priceless piece of information? Well, he went to Baghdad. Or either he or somebody else went to Baghdad. Because they knew, of course, that there were tensions between the two branches of the Hashemite family. And they knew that the Iraqis looked down on their rather poor Jordanian cousins. The thing that always amuses me is how... Um, well, King Hussein, I think, uh, after him, used to get his suits made on the Salt Road in Amman. But, of course, the royal family in Baghdad used to come to Savile Row to, to get theirs. So rather different budgets um, in operation. And the Americans took this information about Abdullah's uh, ambitions to Baghdad. And, of course, that produced the rift that they wanted. And the Iraqis, very soon after that, publicly decri decried, what's the word? Um, distance, denounced, dis distance themselves yes. from this 
Yeah, this is That's it. Thank you, Eugene. I feel a bit Friday. Um, so that was that. So I think, I just think this is an absolutely fascinating little episode. I love the fact that it's sort of in plain sight. It's there in this book, but you have to sort of unravel the book and you have to, you know, work out the, the identities of people who have been anonymised and get the chronology in the right order to see exactly what Roosevelt was up to. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed that particular challenge. So, of course, Tapline was built. Abdullah uh, had already admitted it. He'd actually already agreed to it. Uh, the Syrians took some time, but of course what happened was that in 1949, mysteriously, Kuwatli was overthrown. And uh, within a few days afterwards, now whether, whether the Americans were directly involved or not uh, is a matter of some dispute. Uh, but a few days later, the man who suddenly arrived in power, Husni Zaim, declared that he, the, he made, just made a decree and said that the, the Syrian government was going to approve the tap line. Uh, and so work started on it straight away, well, work had already started on it in the desert, and it was finished by 1950, and it started pumping oil uh, from Saudi to, to, to Europe. And thinking in terms of, oh, of course, what everything's being discussed right at this moment, of course, that is the moment, in a way, that Saudi oil starts to really affect Western energy security and become a, 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 a factor in that. So I think that's, that's an interesting story. Um, in the remaining time, because I'm conscious I've going on. I'm going to talk about one other thing, one other little puzzle which interests me, which is about Wilfred Thesiger, uh, who you hopefully have heard of, um, who was, in 1945, he was working for Haile Selassie <coughs> as his political advisor, and he was bored witless. Uh, he had fought uh, for the SAS during the war. He'd served with Special Operations Executive in Syria, actually, um, a bit before that. But by 1945, he was working for Haile Selassie. And he was approached by a man called Dr. Uvarov of the Locust Control Mission that was part of this concept, the Middle East Supply Centre. This was the, the sort of Britain's embryonic, almost like a European economic community for the Middle East they, they had set up. They'd set it up actually to control imports but, uh, to that part of the world because there was a shortage of shipping. And very quickly, to increase Middle Eastern self-sufficiency during the war, it had expanded, grown like topsy, and started doing things like locust control. And the wonderful thing about the locust control mission was that pretty much unlike any other function in, in the MESC, it had absolute free reign to go wherever it wanted, and even into Saudi Arabia, even despite Ibn Saud's quite justified suspicions about um, its officers. And uh, Dr. Uvarov, rather wonderfully, he used, he used to say, when... When the locusts copulate, there are political troubles, was his, was his maxim. Thesiger, bored, bored out of his mind, was fascinated by the opportunity this, this might bring. As he admitted in Arabian Sands, the book he, he also wrote about this, this time, I was not at all interested in locusts. But he was interested by the, the possibilities. And so he went to the southern coast of Arabia, and he undertook a series of trips across the desert, which he described in Arabian Sands. Now... I read that book years ago, and I, I loved it. And, but I was, sort of came back to it thinking, gosh, this is all happening at exactly the same time that the, that the Saudis are interested in, ex or, or the Americans, Aramco, are interested in understanding just how far to the south Saudis' borders go. Because when Ibn Saud granted Aramco the concession in 1933, he just said, you can drill for oil within my frontiers. But no one knew where those frontiers were. And you can see that even in 1968... It's all dotted lines around here. The northern borders uh, had been fixed because, uh, because of the potential conflict between the Saudis and the Hashemites, but the southern ones hadn't, not least because this is a landscape of shifting sand with dunes that are up to, I don't know, 600 feet high, I think, in some places. And it was very hard to actually draw borders there. 
But the issue of where those borders were was going to be of some significance, some financial significance, because not only had Ibn Saud granted a concession, but so too had um, the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi and also the Sultan of Muscat. They'd also said, you can drill within my frontiers, also undefined. So it's something interesting. So I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. Flesiger is just walking into this conundrum. So Thesiger made an initial trip. He actually did, I think, go locust hunting once at least. Uh, and he made a short journey just, I think, inland, I think from Salada, but basically just in this area here, which is now part of Oman. And that whetted his appetite. He, he encountered people on the, sort of, in, as he got in there, people who actually inhabited the, the empty quarter. And he was genuinely, I think, interested in, in, in crossing that that part of the world but he wasn't the first person to do it and and that again got me interested because Kim Philby's father Sinjin Philby had had made a trip south from Riyadh at some point in the 30s and so too had Bertram Thomas so this wasn't really if you think this is a this is this is entering an age of exploration again this is a time when the British were trying to work out how to climb Everest for example uh, but this wasn't terra incognita or you know um Un unconquered territory, but it was terror prohibitor in the sense that Ibn Saud certainly didn't want foreigners wandering around this part of the world, and nor partic in particular did the, did the Sultan of Muscat, because the Sultan of Muscat, although he'd made this grand, or he'd, he'd issued, he'd sold, sold the concession, he knew for well that his writ didn't extend much beyond the mountains that backed on to, to Muscat itself. So he, he was very reluctant to allow people like Thesiger to go inland because he didn't want them to realise just you know, how, actually how impotent he was. Thesiger made a crossing of the desert and he got almost pretty much to the Sea of Trucial or something like that in this particular map. He may, almost made it across. But when, as he got there, his guides sort of had a fit of the collywobbles. They had heard of the presence of Saudi tax collectors in that part of the country. Ibn Saud was using the tax collectors, essentially using them as a way to sort of spread his sovereignty or spread his claim by sending out these rather fearsome people. And if people paid them tax, then clearly they, they, that, that showed that they, they paid tribute to him. And they were sent out by a man called Ibn Jalui, who... Um, uh, had a squint, so his eyes pointed in different directions, which only added to his sort of rather fearsome reputation <laughs> in the eyes of the of the of the Bedou. And they said, well, if we, you know, if we're captured by these people, we'll be taken uh, back to Hofuf and we'll, we'll be thrown into prison. And they didn't like the fact that Thestio was an enormous man, much taller than me, and uh, had enormous feet. And they didn't want him really walking around on the sand because they knew that anyone who came would immediately identify that someone who was a Westerner had been in, this, uh, in the vicinity or in the, right there. So they were forced to turn back. And as they did so, they came back through what is now Oman and they spotted oil bubbling to the surface or tar on the surface. So, so Thesiger saw the first signs of, of some oil. Thesiger came back to, to Britain. He basically did a cycle where he would talk at the Royal Geographical Society every October and then he would um, then return by winter to conduct another expedition. So he, he went back to um, the RGS, spoke in October 1947, I think this is now, and then returned to undertake another expedition. And this time he was determined he was going to make the crossing of the desert. When he spoke at the RGS, he never said why he turned back. So in the book, in Arabian Sands, he, explained, he gives the full story. But if you read the lecture that he gave at the time, he doesn't explain why he turned back. And I suspect that's because he was working probably for the British government and he had realised that this was essentially kind of rather valuable information and the British didn't want uh, to, any kind of acknowledgement of the extent of Saudi sovereignty, possibly. So they, they wanted, so he didn't say why he, had, 
why he had turned back. But he set out again, and he set out again the following year. Again, it was from somewhere like Salala, and he went north again. But this time he went to a place roughly here, a little village called Suleil, which is a point where he hoped to go and pick up water in the night and then disappear off again back into the sands and make the crossing to Abu, Abu Dhabi. But when he got there, he was arrested. And uh, the headman of the village telegraphed to Riyadh to say that he'd got this foreigner, this Englishman. Ibn Saad was furious because uh, this came just as a moment when he was trying to renegotiate the terms of the concession with Aramco and the sort of sound of, a, sort of the fact that there was a, a clearly a, a rival testing out, seemed to be testing out his border, his southern border, was, was deeply bad news for him. But it was St. John Philby who sprung Thesiger, so he interceded and, and Thesiger was duly allowed to go on and in, in due course he got to the coast. Now, he then went to Bahraini, which is now on the border between uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, between the UAE and, and Oman, and was then the point the British were using to try and look for oil in that part of the world. So there wasn't actually oil there, although people wondered initially whether there might be, but there was an oasis there. So it was the natural and most strategic point for, for any kind of exploration, exploratory activity in that part of the world. And he went into to the oasis, apparently to, to hunt a species of goat called the, the tar. He was determined to get one of these things. And then when the <coughs> IPC man, the Iraq Petroleum man, produced the head of one of these animals, which he got presumably on the sort of kind of post of his hut or something, that's changed tack and said he was interested in flowers as well. Uh, I'll, I'll explain why this is all important. You're wondering why I'm telling you about flowers. But again, Bird was quite a cunning man as well. And he wondered whether there was a bit more to Thesiger's mission or, you know, uh, travels that met the eye. And rather cleverly as well, also at the sort of the, the spy's guide to getting information out of people, rather than say to Thesiger, are you, are you working for um, Aramco, the rival oil company? He said, when, when were you approached by Aramco, the rival oil company? And Thesiger, his guard sort of punctually admitted that while he was in London giving that first lecture, had been approached by Aramco. So they had tried to get him, and maybe he denied it. He said he, that he hadn't worked for Aramco, but I do wonder whether that also helps explain why he was let out of jail earlier in his, in his travels, although no proof at all of that. But he had been approached by Aramco. And that, up to that point, IPC had regarded Thesiger as a bit of a wild card who they didn't really want to be too closely associated with. But at that moment, once they realised that he, he looked like he might be being bought by the other side, they were very, very quick to hire him as an agent to explore the wild areas. And this changes the pattern of Thesiger's travel, and that's one of the things that interested me, because he makes two crossings of the desert. The first one's a failure, the second one he succeeds, and then he goes to Bremi. And after that, he, he undertakes these, these journeys that are a bit like petals of a flower. He sort of does this. So he's starting in Bremi each time, but he makes this series of sort of reconnaissances into the desert. And the reason that he's doing this, and he doesn't explain this in Arabian Sands, you have to, in fact, look here in the archives here again. This is the key to it. It's, it's here, just next, above us. Uh, there's something called the Paxton Papers where this conversation is explained. And it becomes clear that what his job... He's got two jobs now. He is not only looking for the signs of oil, but he's also looking for the signs of Aramco looking for oil. And so the reason I've told you this story is to explain how something that appears just to be exploration ties into this broader story about Anglo-American rivalry in the Middle East. And at that point, I shall stop and we'll move to questions. <laughs>